Well, uh, how many of you guys know that there is a massive difference between a system or an institution of religion and the good news of the gospel? You know that? Um, one of the ways I like to think about it is I think religion is like this. Religion, and I'm using that word in, in kind of a pejorative sense. Not, that's not always, religion is not always a bad thing. But, but religion in the negative sense of it is kind of like this. It's kind of like this idea that God is up on this mountain, right? And, and we as humans, we all know that we've, we've fallen from the mountain. We know there's this disconnect between us and God. We know where we need to be is up the mountain. We need to transcend. We need to elevate ourselves. And every religion kind of says that. You notice that? It's all about sort of getting somewhere. We need to level up. But what's, what, what's interesting is religion says this. Man, man-made, rules-based religions, they, they tend to say, you need to get yourself up the mountain. Right? But that's actually not, that's not the gospel, is it? Why is it not the gospel? It's not the gospel because we can't. We can't get up the mountain. It's just, it's not possible. And you know, you've heard it before, like the, the universalists and the Unitarians, they, they say, you know, there's lots of paths up the mountain, and we're all in a different path, but we're all going to the same place. Baloney. Okay, baloney. Here's the gospel. The gospel stands in stark contrast to this idea of false religion. The gospel is not, God's up the mountain, you fell down, now get yourself up. The gospel is, God came down the mountain and picked you up and carried your sorry behind up the mountain. Okay? That's the gospel. Because you couldn't get up. You didn't know how to get up. You were not capable of getting up. God has transcended into our space. He has come into space and time, and he has carried us back to him. That's the gospel. Do you see the difference? Religious systems are probably, and I don't have any statistics to quote on this, but I think it's pretty safe to say religious institutions um, are probably one of the primary uh, sources or primary spaces of human evil in the world. Um, you know, planes flying into buildings, um, systemic uh, abuse, cover-up, scandals, all of that is within religious institutions. Most of the wars, and, and, and a lot of people will point this out to you in, in an effort to try to cut you down as a Christian. They'll tell you, you know, religion is responsible for most of the evil that humans have ever done. And you know what you need to say? You need to go, you're right. You're absolutely right. Because what religious human institution, human made, human man-made religious institutions do is they, they try to create a system where people have to change. But then when they don't change, they just cover it up. And they sweep it under the rug. And they say, well, let's just pretend like we changed because it's too costly to the organization. So we need something different. There's a really good picture of this. I want you to keep your finger in Hebrews 8 because that's where we're going to be. But I want you to flip just, to, just for a minute over to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. I think this is one of the most interesting texts, one of the most interesting pictures of religion gone wrong in the Bible. Genesis 4 this might sound really profound. Genesis 4 comes after Genesis 3. <laughs> Write that down. It's significant because what happened in Genesis 3? The whole world changed. It was cursed. Okay? Sin had brought the world into a place of being cursed and under wrath. So we are in a Genesis 3 world. And we've been in a Genesis 3 world ever since. Thorns and thistles mark our existence. A broken world. But after God told Adam and God told Eve that the consequences of your sin was death, I would imagine that the next thing out of their mouth was, what's death? Have you thought about that? They'd never experienced death. Death wasn't a reality for them. They'd never known anything called death. Then we get to chapter 4, and we see the first death. And it's not a death that happens from old age. It's not a death that happens from sickness. It's a death that happens from the hands of another human being. Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. So here we have the first two new humans. Okay, the first two humans. The first one, uh, Cain, is really the firstborn, so he would have been the one they would have been looking to, to carry on the line, to fulfill the cultural mandate that God gave Adam. The second one's name is Abel, and Abel in Hebrew means hevel, which is like a vapor. 
Okay, so, so the hope for humanity in a Genesis 3 world rests on a murderer and a vapor. Okay, why is he a vapor? Because his life is, it's, it's fleeting, it's quick, it's, it's short. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. How interesting is this? Way before the Mosaic law and the Mosaic system, here we have Cain and Abel just knowing naturally that they needed to bring some kind of an offering to the Lord. Okay, and they, and they do. And Cain brings the fruit of his work, the fruit of the ground, and Abel brings the fruit of his work, the fruit of a flock. Now, this was not an atonement offering. They weren't trying to make good on something. This was an offering of, of praise and worship. This was an offering of thanks to the Lord. But for Cain, in verse 5, in his offering, he had no regard. Who? The Lord. The Lord had no regard for Cain's offering. He says, mm, no, thank you. I'll pass. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? This is so interesting. The Lord is interfacing with Cain directly. He says, why are you so angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, note this, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, we know what happens if you've read the book of Genesis, right? The next thing that happens, Cain is not able to rule over his sin. Sin rules over Cain. And because sin rules over Cain, sin ends up taking Cain to a place where his hands are around the neck of his brother out of jealousy and in a fit of rage. And I can imagine Cain looking down at his brother's corpse going, what, what is this? What did I just do? And, and, and I can imagine Eve stumbling across the carcass of her dead son and realizing, oh, that's death. That's what God said was going to happen as a result of our rebellion. Cain, God comes to him, if you read on, and, and, and he does exactly what Adam did. He hides and blame shifts. And that's what we've all been doing as humans pretty much ever since, right? Hides and blame shifts. Now, why am I bringing up this story? What does this have to do with Hebrews 8? I want you to see a few things of relevance in this passage. First of all, I want you to see that worship is a natural human proclivity. Do you see that? Everybody knows, every human, I don't care who you are, knows that they are supposed to get up the mountain. They know that there's a God, and now they may make that God science and evolution or themselves, but they know there's a God, and they know they're supposed to worship to it. So here in Genesis 4, we see the first sons of Adam and Eve doing what is instinctual to them, worshiping God. It was a natural thing to do, okay? Secondly, I want you to see that worship in a fallen world is not easy. In fact, it's deadly, right? This is, a, this is a religious setting in which the first murder takes place. First homicide, archetypical sin, destruction of the Imago Dei, Cain killing Abel in a worship service. It's a religious environment. I want you to see that worship is not universally accepted. Do you see that? Some people will tell you that. Like, hey, everybody worships God in their own way. Everyone gets to God their own way. Everyone gets up the mountain a different way. Um, tell that to Cain. God said, no, thank you. I don't want your worship. So that teaches us that not all worship is acceptable. Now, why wasn't Cain's worship acceptable? Hebrews tells us, okay, it's because Abel's worship was done in faith. And I think when you reverse engineer that, you realize Cain's was not. I think Cain's was done legalistically, as we'll, we'll see. So Cain's was rejected. I want you to see that uh, worship settings are venues where human evil can happen and be covered up. Okay, this is what happens here. I want you to see that um, acceptance by God is a human desire that we lack the basic ability to attain to. God says, Cain, you can be accepted. You just got to do right. Problem is, we can't ever do enough right to feel accepted by God. So what do we need? Here, Genesis 4, first human family. What do we see? We see brokenness. We see a broken worship system. We see people unable to get back to God, un unable to worship God correctly, unable to even function within a worship environment without murder. What do we need? Well, I'll tell you what we need. We need a system of religion that is not dependent on man's ability. Wouldn't that be great? 
We need a bloodline that's different than Adam's. Like father, like son, right? We need a system of religion that doesn't just limit behavior, it transforms it. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, that's all religion can do, right? That's all rules and rituals and traditions can do. It can just limit human evil. But it doesn't have the ability to transform. Wouldn't it be nice if there was something that could transform our desires? We need a religious system that accredits mercy before expecting conformity. Wouldn't that be nice? We need a religious system that actually brings acceptance by God rather than mere praises of man. Okay? Our text this morning is going to... You can go to Hebrews Hebrews now, Hebrews 8. Our text this morning is going to say, we need a better religion, basically, than the religion of the day in which this book was written. And I'll unpack what I mean by that. Our text unpacks for us such a religion as I just exclaimed, one that is not just about behavior modification, one that's not just about hiding sin, limiting sin, covering sin, one that's not just about getting someone to pledge allegiance to a certain environment or institution, but one that's about changing people from the inside out. This is what the author is going to argue to the original audience that they need to hold on to in Hebrews 8. In order to endear our hearts to the reality of real religion, he must first divorce our hearts from the inadequacy of false religion. Okay? That's chapter 8. Now, before we jump in, let me just let me say a very what I think is a very logical statement. You tell me if it's logical or not. Okay? When something is obsolete, outdated, and unable to accomplish the task that it was designed for or that it should be able to do or is needed to do, you need something better, right? Is that logical? Let me give you an example. Uh, a couple years ago, um, my wife and I said, you know, we should buy some dining room chairs because we always had this, these old hand-me-down chairs that were peeling. And everything. So I, I did what any self-respecting um, millennial would do. I, I chose not to go to the furniture store and, and buy nice chairs. I chose to get on a certain uh, massive big box retailer online that rhymes with Shmamazon. Um, I won't say where it is because I don't want you to judge me. But uh, I went on to this, this certain website and I bought these really cheap chairs that looked really good. I mean, they, they were really trendy. They were really modern. And, and, and I even got like eight of them for like, they were like 20 bucks a piece. It's crazy, right? And now what is a chair's basic function? To hold your bottom. Yes. This, this just to keep you from falling onto the ground. Basic functionality. This is what a chair is supposed to do. The chairs that we got did not do this basic functional thing, okay? The, the, the bolts that attached the chair to the legs fell out, and then we got, they lo- we got lost. No matter how many times we put them back in, they'd fall out again. And my kids, like, would flip over in these chairs because they, they were just not balanced. They were not healthy chairs, bad chairs. That's the point. Badger. They just didn't work. They weren't working. Now, you might say, Sam, and some of you guys in here, you're like fix-it guys. You're like, you just need to fix them. You just need to improve on them. Okay. The, the, the flaws of the chairs were systemic. Okay. It was, it was a design-level flaw. They're, these chairs were just not thought out. Whoever made these, whoever thought of it, just was not thinking, right? So we don't just need fixed chairs. We need entirely new chairs. Are you with me? That's basically what Hebrews 8 is going to say. Okay? Got it? We, we, we don't just need to tune up the Judaism system of the day, the religious system, the system uh, uh, of what the Jews had kind of turned the Mosaic law into. We don't just need to kind of fix that up. We need an entirely new system. We need a better system, a better way to relate to God, a better way to get to God. We need entirely new chairs. And you might ask, Sam, is it frustrating that you had to buy those chairs and in, in, in order that you had to now buy new chairs, which we just did. We bought new chairs. Um, better chairs, superior chairs. They still were cheap, but they're better. Okay, now you might say, Sam, are you frustrated that you had to have the old chairs before you bought the new chairs? And I would say, uh, yeah, but, but, thank you for asking, by the way. I, I really, <laughs> I appreciate you guys' therapeutic concern for me. Um, yes, but I'm not unhappy that I had to not buy new chairs because I now appreciate the new chairs significantly more. See, the old chairs pointed me to the superiority of a better chair. 
Now, when I sit in the new chairs, I go, ah, oh, better. <laughs> better. And that's a, that's a word, by the way, better. That's a word that is used countless times in the book of Hebrews. Countless times. It's, it's, the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see there's something better. There's something better. And it's not just a tweak. It's not just a tune-up. It's not just a little, a little fix-up. Let's take the system of religion that the Jews were operating in the temple and the priests. Let's just tune it up a little bit. No. No, we need an entirely new thing. We need an entirely new covenant. And this morning, the author is going to argue for a new and a better covenant. Now, I need to spend just a few minutes explaining to you guys, because I don't know how often we talk about this, explaining to you guys what the nature of the, the Mosaic covenant is. Okay, what's the Mosaic covenant? What's well, the covenant that God made with Moses on Sinai? Okay, uh, well, what's a covenant? Let me just start there. A covenant is an agreement or a contract uh, made between multiple parties. There's lots of covenants in the Bible. Who can tell me a covenant in the Bible? Anybody? What was it? Davidic covenant. Good. Very good. What's another covenant in the Bible? Abrahamic. Abrahamic. Okay. Noahic. Yep. Any others? Mosaic. Okay. Cool. That's the only ones I can remember, so let's, let's stop there. Uh, <laughs> lots of covenants in the Bible. And when you look at the covenants, you're going to realize that, that God is, is, is entering into sort of an agreement. And with each agreement, there's a promise. There's always a promise. So some covenants are what I would like to call unilateral covenants. Okay, some that are very theological could call them monergistic. Uh, they're, they're promise covenants. They're covenants of grace. They're covenants that are God is making a covenant and you get to benefit from it. What kind of covenants are those? The Noahic covenant. There's no contract there. God didn't say, hey, if you don't totally get debased and pagan and evil again, I won't flood the world. What do you say? I'm not flooding the world ever again. And there's a sign of the covenant, the rainbow, okay? The Abrahamic covenant, what did God say? He said, I'm entering into a covenant with you, Abraham, not because you're so awesome, and, and I'm not going to revoke this covenant if you don't do what I say. He said, I'm entering this covenant, Abraham, because I am. God made the promise. And remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. When God made the covenant with Abraham, he put Abraham to sleep, and he made it with himself. You can read about it in Genesis, okay? It's an unconditional covenant. It's a covenant of grace. But then we get to the Mosaic Covenant. This covenant's a little different. And I want you to understand why it's different and how it's different. And by the way, when the Bible says old covenant, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the Mosaic covenant. Here's what's unique about the Mosaic covenant it wasn't a covenant with people, individuals, it was a covenant with a nation, with a group of people. Do you understand that? So nobody was ever saved by the Mosaic covenant. It was not a covenant of salvation, it was a covenant with a nation. And that covenant had promises. What were the promises of the Mosaic Covenant? It was very simple. They were binary. The promise was, if you choose to honor my covenant, I will bless you. If you choose to disobey in the covenant, I will curse you. Okay, that's a national covenant that God made with a people group. Nothing to do with eternal salvation. Everything to do with the nation of Israel. God was establishing what theologians call a theocracy. Can you guys say theocracy? theocracy? Remember that word. Okay, theocracy, it's a nation ruled by God. God was creating a covenant with these people saying, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. So you don't need a king. Okay, they didn't need a king originally because God was going to be their king. It's the theocracy. And that's why the, the Mosaic covenant has lots of different rules. Have you noticed that? Some of the rules in there are what we call civic rules. And those rules, they don't apply to us anymore. They, they were literally, how can the people of God live with each other? So there's, there's punishment rules, and there's, there's, uh, uh, there's uh, legal rules in there. There's rules about uh, where to go to the bathroom. There's rules about all kinds of things in there. These are, these are civil rules. How do, how do we live together as a people? Some of the rules were what are called ceremonial rules. Okay, the, those were the rules of how do we operate within the system of the temple, how do we bring sacrifices? When do we bring sacrifices? What are the feast days? That's the ceremonial. And then there's other rules in there called moral or ethic rules, Ten Commandments. These are basic ethics, right? So God laid all of these things out to Israel. Now, he didn't give those rules so that he could accomplish righteousness for all people. He gave those rules for a particular reason. It was the same reason that I'm thankful that I had the chairs I had before. What's the reason? He gave the Mosaic Covenant to point to a greater covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant, 
was not a unilateral covenant. It was a bilateral covenant, which meant God said, look, if you hold up your end of the bargain, I'll hold up my end of the bargain. If you guys honor me, Israel, then I will bless you. He holds before them life and death. Now, did they honor the covenant? Not really. They, they tried. Yeah, they tried. But, you know, um, other than like 50 years of Israel's history, listen to this. This will blow your mind. There was a pagan idol in the holy place of the temple for almost the entirety of Israel's history, other than like a 50-year period. Isn't that wild? Basically, David's life. And then Solomon, he married all these wives, all these pagan wives. He adopted their gods. They set up the high places. Idolatry was rampant in Israel to the point where they adopted Baal worship, to the point where they were sacrificing their own kids to Molech. Israel got bad. This law, this system of religion that God gave Israel, it was not doing what it really needed to do. But then again, God never really gave it to them for the purpose of creating righteousness. You know, if I, if I looked at my toaster and I got really angry and I said, stupid toaster, you can't make bread. What would you say to me? You said, well, it's not supposed to make bread. It's supposed to make toast. Okay? God didn't give the Mosaic covenant to create righteousness. He gave it to show them their need for righteousness. You see, Sam, where are you getting all this? It's all in the New Testament. It's all in the book of Romans. It's all in the book of Galatians. Paul says that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was our schoolmaster driving us to show us our need for a superior righteousness. That's the whole purpose of it. And what we're going to see today is that God created the theocracy, remember the theocracy? He created the theocracy as a model of a more real thing. You guys ever have model trains when you were a kid? We had this model train, you know, uh, and, and it was fun for two seconds, and then it just goes around and around. You're like, what do we do now? You're like, create jumps on the tracks? Like, I don't know. What do we do with a model train? Okay, but a model train, the purpose of a model train is to sort of depict a real train, so you try to make them look real. Well, the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant and the theocracy was to portray a more real thing. So this might be interesting. Tune in here. The tabernacle and the temple, why did God tell them to build this thing? It was God just randomly had a random idea. I got an idea. Let's make a room. And we'll put a room inside of the room. And then inside of that room, inside of the room, we'll put a box. And then we'll put some lampstands. And, and we'll put a table. Like, was God just randomly thinking of these things? No. God took Moses up on Mount Sinai. And what did he do? He showed him something. What did he show him? I think he showed him the real temple. I think he showed him the blueprint. And we'll see that in our text. I think it showed in the blueprint of the real temple. Did you guys know that the tabernacle and the temple, same thing, just one's a tent and one's a building. Okay, the, the, the tabernacle and the temple were, were modeled after a real place. God's heavenly holy of holies. Isn't that cool? Does anyone else think that's interesting? All of it, it is a trick. All of it was meant to point to a more real thing. Why was there a veil? Because there is a veil between the two dimensions, between God's world and our world. There's a veil between the holy place and where man can enter. So it's all a model. But not only the temple and the tabernacle was a model, the whole kingdom of Israel was a model. It was a model of the kingdom of God. He was trying to portray this, and he was trying to picture this. Okay, that's way too much introduction. Let's get into the text. I know it seems like I'm rambling, but all this will make sense in a minute. Okay, so the audience, here's what they're tempted to do. They're tempted to take the shadow and leave the substance, Right? They're tempted to take the shadow and, and, and leave the substance. Here we go, verse 1, chapter 8. And if you have the handout, this breaks up into three parts. Uh, our great priest went into a greater temple, verse 1 through 5, and mediated a greater covenant, enacted on greater promises, verse 6 through 12. And lastly, so the old covenant is obsolete. So our great high priest went into a greater temple, mediated a greater covenant, enacted on greater promises. So the old covenant is obsolete. For you guys not taking notes, you're like, why are you repeating that? Uh, for those of you guys that are taking notes, you're like, thank you. I can write it down. Verse one. So now the author says, now the point in what we are saying is this. That's a classic phrase for summary. The author wants to summarize a lot of what he's saying, and he wants to bring it to a point. Well, what has he be, been saying? Okay, last week, uh, the entire of chapter, entirety of chapter 7 was about this new order of priesthood, 
The author is anticipating the argument, well, Jesus can't be the high priest because Jesus didn't come from the order of Aaron. He didn't come from the order of Levi. And so he spent all of chapter 7 arguing there's a better order. There's a transcendent order of priests. It's called the Melchizedekian priest. And Jesus is of that line. So he says, now the point of what we were saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is, note it, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places and the true, note that word, true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So what does he mean here? He means what we just said. Jesus didn't go into the make-believe temple. The, the priests of Israel, they were, like, they were like little kids playing. They were playing temple. They weren't going into the real temple. They weren't making real atonement. They weren't making real atonement for all of Israel. Jesus went into the real temple and made real and lasting atonement, not the one made by hands, but the one made by God. And when he did that, he what? He sat down. And we've talked about this before, but I need you to see the significance of the sitting down. This is something the New Testament offers, authors bring up all the time about Jesus. He, he went into heaven. He made atonement. He went into the, the, the throne room of God, and then he sat down. Why did he sit down? Well, there's no seats in the temple. Did you know that? There's no seats. There's no couches. Why? Because the priests were always working. There was always another sacrifice. There was always another thing that needed to be done. There was always more um, lamps that needed to be lit or whatever. There's always ministry that needed to be happened. Yet Jesus, in the real temple, he sits down. Why is he sitting down? Three words. It is finished. It's done. Atonement has been made. It is complete. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's not the only thing you're supposed to see there. You're also supposed to see at the right hand of the Father not only means that it's completed, it means that Jesus has been inaugurated, meaning he has the position of power, the position of authority over all the universe. When you picture Jesus, I want you to picture him seated at the right hand of majesty, the right hand of glory, the right hand of the Father. And when you picture that, I want you to remember two things. Jesus did it, it's finished, and he has all power and authority. That's how we're supposed to picture Jesus. He is risen, he is ascended, he is seated. He is inaugurated. He is ruling over all creation. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Okay, so the, the priests didn't just go into the temple for no reason. They went in to offer something, either an atoning sacrifice or a worship offering. Those were the two things. Now, verse 4, If he were on earth, that is Jesus, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now, he's just bringing up the argument we talked about last week, that if Jesus was a priest on earth, he wouldn't be a priest because he didn't come from the order of what? Levi, Aaron, okay? Both same thing. He, he, he didn't come from that order. But verse five, they serve. Now, here's where I'm getting this idea of a copy, of, of, a, of a, a model train, if you will. Verse five, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. You see it? For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God on Mount Sinai saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. You see that? That's why I think, I think God literally showed Moses the real temple. He said, make it like this. And in the real temple, it shares these dimensions. Now, he's going to get into the meat of his argument. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So here's where we get this idea that we are in a new covenant. We're in a new covenant. Jesus, like Moses, came down the mountain. See, Moses, he went up to the mountain, he went up to Mount Sinai, he got the, the plans for the temple, he got the law, and then he came down in Exodus and he mediated the covenant. Jesus is the greater Moses who didn't come down Sinai, he came out of heaven in the incarnation and he mediated a greater covenant. Follow me. What did Jesus say the night that he sat down with his guys around the table to have Passover? What did he say? He said, I have a new covenant for you. This is, this is a new 
covenant. A new covenant. This is, Jesus is mediating. He's giving a new covenant. And this new covenant is enacted on better promises. Well, what, what were the promises of the old covenant? The promise of the old covenant were do good and I'll bless you, do bad and I'll curse you. The covenant of the new promise is, or the promises of the new covenant are entirely different because God is saying, I'm just going to bless you. It's a totally different thing. We'll dig more into that in just a moment. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been, so, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If my chairs worked fine, I wouldn't have bought other ones, would I? It was the obvious issue with my chairs that led me to want to get new chairs. So the author of Hebrews is saying very plainly, clearly the old system was not working. I woke up this morning at 5 in the morning like I do, and I went out on my couch, and I made a fire, and I had my coffee, and I started looking over my sermon notes, and I hear this sound. I'm like, what is that? What is going on? And I listen again. What could that possibly be? It's five in the morning. It's coming from my daughter's room. What could it possibly be? You know what I realized it was? It was her hamster. It was in her, it was in her hamster wheel. Five in the morning. I don't know. Apparently, that's the time hamsters work out, you know? Uh, you guys go to the gym at five in the morning, you're on a treadmill, you're basically a hamster, okay? It's like the same thing. And I'm sitting here thinking about why the, we needed a better covenant. And I'm like, that's it. Hamster wheel. That's what the old covenant was. Every year, another lamb had to be slain. Every year, another Passover lamb had to be killed. Hundreds of thousands of Passover lambs. Every single day, there was a need for more righteousness to be made. Hamster wheel, constantly. Jesus mediated a better covenant. Why? Because it's done. Because it's finished. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see here. If there was no need for a second, we wouldn't have a second. But there is a need for a second. Now, he's going to quote, for the rest of our text this morning, he's going to now quote Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah 39 is one, or Jeremiah 31, pardon me, what did I say? Jeremiah 31 is one of the most famous verses that prophesy the new covenant. And he's going to use that to explain to us why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And that's the whole thing I want you to get this morning. Why is the new covenant better than the old covenant? Here's, he starts quoting Jeremiah. He says, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming declares the Lord. This is future. Jeremiah was written somewhere around like the 700s BC, okay? Uh, Jeremiah lived through the Babylonian exile, and, and he writes this down. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. What does that teach us? The new covenant is different than the old covenant. These are entirely different things, and we'll talk about why here in a minute. This is a totally new idea, totally new covenant. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now you have to remember, when Jeremiah wrote this down, he wrote it down to the Jews who were exiled. Sam, why does that matter? It matters because the exile was the result of Israel not obeying the Mosaic covenant. God said, if you don't follow this covenant, I'm going to boot you out of your land. And he meant it. Now, he was patient and he waited. But after hundreds and hundreds of years, God finally used the Babylonians to, to, to kick Israel out of their land for 70 years. And it's in this time that Jeremiah sits down and he writes this promise of the new covenant. And what a fitting background for that. Can you imagine, imagine being the Jews and going, is there any hope for us? Man, we've been so disobedient that we literally have been exiled is there ever going to come a time where we get off the hamster wheel? Is there ever going to be a time where we are sufficient, where we can actually obey, where we can actually follow God? And Jeremiah, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, sits down and he prophesies this new covenant that's coming in the future. It's really good news. And here's the new covenant. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to give us the meat of what makes the new covenant better. And it's going to break into four parts. The first thing he wants us to see about the new covenant. The new covenant means, number one, write it down. The new covenant means heart-level obedience instead of surface-level observance. We're in the new covenant right now. Do you guys understand that? 
If you're in Christ, you're in the new covenant. So now I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes telling you why that's good news. And if you're not in the new covenant, I'm going to tell you why you need to be in the new covenant. In fact, Jeremiah is going to tell us. So four things that the new covenant means. Number one, heart level obedience instead of surface level observance. Look what he says. God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This is a distinctive of the new covenant. Why is this important? Well, it's important because Israel didn't seem to have a problem with knowing God's words. They seem to have a problem with caring about God's words. They, they seem to have a problem with doing. They, they, they had a problem with actually uh, caring enough about the nature of God to where they wanted to honor God's words. There's a difference, right, between knowing something and doing something. There's a difference between knowing you should do something and wanting to do something. What God did in the new covenant was he took all these rules and he said, these rules are not going to become a burden to you anymore because these rules are going to become enmeshed with your heart and with your mind. What that means is what they needed were new hearts that were enmeshed with God's mind and they needed new minds that were enmeshed with God's heart. That's the new covenant. That's the difference between the gospel and false religion. False religion says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you get to go do that. The gospel says, let God completely renovate your heart, and you'll want to do the right things. And you'll actually grow into doing the right things. And your entire desires will change. Have you guys ever seen this happen? You've seen it happen in your own life, the stuff that you, I mean, you just can't sin the way you used to before you got saved. You notice that? You ever try to like do something you used to think was really enjoyable in the world and you're like, man, I just can't enjoy that anymore. Why? Because you have conviction now. You got a new heart. You've been given a heart of flesh. That's new covenant living. That's new covenant life. It's not just a rule anymore. It's a reality that has become enmeshed with your heart. Now, what changed in the new covenant? What was the pivotal thing? What was the catalyst? What was the big thing that made it to where all of a sudden now we have the law of God written on our hearts? Turn with me just really quickly to Ezekiel 36, 25. There's a, a counterpart to the prophecy in the Old Testament about the new covenant, and it's in Ezekiel 36. You should really be familiar with, with both these passages, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. Ezekiel 36, notice what Ezekiel highlights when he talks about the new covenant. 36.25. God's speaking here. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. In other words, I'm going to cleanse you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. That's pretty emphatic. And from all your idols, which was the, the primary sin of Israel. I will cleanse you. So we have righteousness there. And I will give you a new heart. Same idea. But notice what Ezekiel adds that Jeremiah doesn't. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. That means that's alien to us. It's not something we have within us. It's something that's put within us. It's something that comes from outside of us. We're given a new spirit. I will put within you. It says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Church, what's the catalyst? The spirit of God. What happened at Pentecost? What happened in the new covenant? The veil was torn and the spirit of God was released. And then this new thing called regeneration happened. We are born again. Born again, what does that mean? It means that the spirit of God has inhabited us now. The spirit of God is inside you, believer, working to, to enmesh God's law with your heart and God's mind with your heart. They become one. The sign of maturity is that you start thinking a lot more like Jesus. And you start doing what Jesus wants you to do. And you start caring about what Jesus cares about. That's the sign of new covenant life. It's the sign of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. I've been so encouraged lately. As a pastor, you know, you, you put forth God's word and you say, hey, this is what God wants you to do. This is what the Bible says. And sometimes Christians, they go, nah, I don't want to do that right now. You know, and they, and they choose not to. But I've been so encouraged lately. By Christians going, you're right. I should be doing that. You're right. That's costly, but I am going to honor the Lord. You're right. I am convicted about that. You're right. That is the wrong thing. 
What's happening in that moment when we put forth God's word and God's people respond in obedience? That's a sign of new covenant life. That's a sign that the spirit of God has written the, the law on your heart. It's not just on tablets of stone. It's not just on some scroll. It's not just on some poster on a wall. It's in your heart. It's heart level obedience. It's heart level obedience. It's a new covenant. It's only found in the new covenant. It's only the work of the spirit. Now, does this mean we can stop reading our Bibles and just say, I'm just tuned into my heart? No, don't do that. Your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Romans 12, 2 says we need to transform our minds. Okay? We transform it by reading God's word. And the more we get God's word into us, the more we start to think like God thinks. That's why we get together to study the word. Now, this is where false religions fall short, right? They say, or they, they, they say that knowing leads to doing, which leads to being. But the gospel says the being thing has to happen first. Being leads to knowing, leads to doing. You see how that's backwards? False religion says you need to do stuff. You need to know stuff. And then you can become something. Christianity says, no, you need to be born again. Because you don't know anything until the spirit of God has come in and revealed it to you. And then once you've become something by grace, by mercy, by the spirit, then you'll start to do the right things. Okay, we can't just try to force people to do the right thing. Have you ever tried that? Anybody have kids? It doesn't work. That's one of the most frustrating things about my job. I can't make anybody do anything. I can get up here and yell until I'm red in the face, and no one's going to do what I say. The Spirit of God has the ability to change people from the inside out at the deepest levels. It's the reality of the new covenant life. The second thing about the new covenant, he says, write it down. The new covenant means, number two, I'm going to use a big word here, ontologically belonging instead of ethnically associating. Ontologically belonging instead of ethnically associating. What is ontologically? Ontologically just since it sort of means your entire being, your entire person. The new covenant means that we now belong to God not just because we were born into the right genetic line, but because we actually know God. Look at the text. It says, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And then he says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, you might be saying, weren't the Israelites God's people? Wasn't he their God? Uh, in name only. Was that, there's like rhino, Republican, in name only? Have you heard that? It's like Israel, you know, Israelite, in name only. That's, there was a lot of Jews, there was a lot of Jews who were Jews, but they weren't really Jews. They were ethnically Jews, but they weren't really following Yahweh. What he's saying is in the new covenant, you're not just going to be God's people because you happen to be born in this certain tribe. You're going to be God's people because you are literally born into a new family, born again into this new family. It's really, really amazing. You know, you guys know you can, you can belong to something technically and not really uh, belong to something in reality. Just ask the guy that's in charge of managing the membership database at some old Baptist church, right? I, I love talking to these. How many people go to your church? Well, our membership role is 600. Our Sunday attendance is 15. You know, it's like, where's all the, where's the 500 and so, you know, and this, this, is, this can happen. Like, I'm a member of this, but I'm not really part of this. Like I signed up for this. God is saying in his new economy, in his new covenant, no one's going to be in it just because they happen to be pushed into it. No one's going to be in it because they signed on a dotted line. People are born into it and they are connected at the deepest ontological level. Okay? In the new covenant, we are immersed into Christ. Remember, we learned this in the Holy Spirit series. We are immersed by the Spirit into Christ. We're not just associated with Christ. We're in Christ. The Spirit draws us into him. We are one with him in that way. And this is where false religions fall short. False religions tend to emphasize affiliation. We want your membership. We want you to sign up. We want to say you're part of this. Whereas the gospel emphasizes regeneration. Well, you need to be born again into this. I can put it this way. You don't just need to shift parties. You need to shift identities and realities. Okay? You don't just need to sign on the dotted line. You need to become part of it. And that's, that's the new covenant reality. Number three. Number three, the new covenant means knowing God personally instead of looking through the hierarchy. Knowing God personally instead of looking through the hierarchy. Verse 11, and they shall not teach one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me 
from the least of them to the greatest. Isn't that incredible? Now, that's not, uh, that is not um, inconsistent with the Great Commission. It's not saying don't go tell people about Jesus because everyone will know about Jesus. It's saying within the community, within the covenant community, everyone's going to know Jesus. Everyone's going to know Jesus within this new covenant. Okay? It's really a really cool thing. Now, how can we truly know God? How can we truly know God in this new covenant? There's three reasons. The first reason is because God came into our dimension. Isn't that incredible? I said in the beginning, religion says, get up the hill, go transcend, go find God. The gospel says God came down. And we can now know God. We can now know God because God has come into this world in flesh. The Logos, the Word, we now know Him through Christ. We now know God because we have His complete revelation. And we now know God because His Spirit lives within us. This is New Covenant thinking. Okay? This is where false religion falls short. It calls you to know about God theoretically, but it doesn't call us to know God personally. And this is one of the most astounding features of the New Covenant. You get to know God personally. Isn't that incredible? I feel like as evangelicals, we're just like, yeah, I know that. Like, that's incredible. In the new covenant, you get to know God personally. He lives within you. His son has come into this world. You could read about him. You can can know him. You can speak to him. It's an incredible new covenant reality. Number four, the new covenant means mercy in totality instead of covering that's only temporary. Mercy in totality instead of covering that's only temporary. We see this in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So instead of needing lamb after lamb after lamb, we have once for all covenant, covering. This, guys, this is the acceptance that Cain could not find. This is the acceptance that Cain wanted. This is the acceptance that Cain was hoping for, I think, in, in, his, in his offering. And it wasn't there. Because we need a better offering. Not our own offering, but the offering of Christ. Now, let's recap. The new covenant is better because by God's mercy, we are given authentic obedience, personal transcendence, total acceptance, and perfect righteousness. Can you imagine, as I said at the beginning, a religion that didn't just get at behavior modification, didn't just get into limiting our, our bad stuff, but actually changes from the inside out. That's the new covenant. It's really good news. It's what the gospel is good news about. Now, let's finish out the chapter. So the old covenant is obsolete, is what he's going to say. Verse verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, what's the word? Obsolete. Anybody in here still have a razor? Anybody know what a razor is? And I don't mean the scooter. You got a razor? No, you don't have a razor. Nobody has a razor. Why does nobody have a Razor cell phone? By the way, Razor, for those of you guys that don't know, Razor was like the cool phone when I was like a freshman in high school or something. It was like the, the happening phone. It was like the iPhone 13 Pro Max of its day, right? Um, it, and it was, it, it, I don't know why, but it was really cool. If you, have an, if you have a Razor now, you probably can't even use it. It's just, does it have 5G? Probably not, right? Okay, it doesn't even have 4G, okay? So it's obsolete. And what he's saying here is he's saying, this old covenant thing, you guys need to move on. It's obsolete. It's outdated. And then he says, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old, note it, is ready to vanish away. Now, think, why does the author of Hebrews say this old obsolete technology of the temple and the priesthood, it's ready to vanish away? Well, when was Hebrews written? about five years before the temple was destroyed. So in his particular time frame, within five years' time, the temple was going to be wiped off the face of the earth, the entire system. And there has not been a sacrifice that I'm aware of on the Temple Mount since then. Someone told me the other day, it was really funny, that he showed me a news article that that, that these, these Jews, they try to sneak lambs into the Temple Mount. It's like, and they get busted, and they're like, they get, they get really in trouble for it. And there was a, recently, there was a national news article that some guy was like sneaking a lamb. He was going to go on the, on the Temple Mount. Like, how, are you serious? Like, what are you doing? They, they really do it. You can look it up. Google it. Uh, that, that's how desperate these Jews are to get back to their system. Because in their thinking, this system is how we're going to be connected back to God. This system is how we're going to get back up the mountain to God. The author of Hebrews says, it's obsolete. It's going away. It's vanishing. Cling to Christ the better covenant, okay? So what? So what? Let me just close here. 
To the original audience, the point is very clear, but you might be saying, again, Sam, how does this apply to me? I'm not tempted to go back to the Mosaic law. I'm not tempted to go up a temple. I'm not tempted to go try to sacrifice a lamb. I'm not looking at some priest. So how does this have relevance to me? And here's what I think it does. I think that this text has relevance to us because we all have this tendency to drift towards rules-based, contractual, and legalistic religion. Have you noticed that? We do. We do. We, we, we love the rules. And let me give you some reasons why. First of all, because it's easier to move your hands than it is to change your heart. Have you noticed that? It's easier to move your hands than it is to change your heart. It's easier to just do more stuff than to try to change yourself at a soul level. It's not easy to do. And that's why only the new covenant has the answer for how to change our hearts. Only the Spirit of God can do that. It is easier for our minds to comprehend bilateral contracts, meaning I do something good, God does something good for me. We're all hardwired for legalism. Have you noticed that? I know it because people say things like this all the time. Like, I don't understand. I did so much for God and now I'm sick. What, what do you think? God owes you something? That's legalism. Legalism is, God, I did stuff for you. You better do stuff for me. That's how our brains naturally think. Guys, the new covenant, it's not a bilateral covenant. Spoiler alert, it's a covenant of grace. It's God's mercy poured out on us. Now, how do we quit rules-based religion? How do we quit? How do we move on? How do we do what the author of Hebrews is trying to get his audience to do? How do we move away from this? Let me just... Quickly in a nutshell, the way to quit rules-based religion is to give up on yourself. That's probably the most unpopular thing you could ever tell modern Western people. You need to stop believing in yourself. But people have been telling me my whole life, I need to believe in myself. You need to stop thinking that you have everything inside of you that you need. Stop it. I know that people, including Disney, has been telling you that you have what you need, that you can do it, that you just need to reach within and believe in yourself. And you No, it's a lie. You've been lied to. The gospel is the complete opposite. The gospel says, there is a covenant of grace that you will only see and only receive when you quit on yourself. I don't mean quit on yourself from your value. I mean quit trying to make it on your own. Quit trying to do enough. Quit trying to make yourself acceptable to God. And realize that God has shown mercy, that he has made this this beautiful, undeniable covenant of grace. I'll just end with this quote. I love this. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the whole parable about carrying the weight of the law. He said, run, John, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Isn't that good? The law says, do more. Get on the hamster wheel. Try harder. Earn your righteousness. Be accepted. Bring more sacrifices. But it does not give us the ability to do it. It is flawed systemically. The new covenant of God, the new covenant of grace says, I'm going to call you to more righteousness. I'm going to call you to more holiness, but I'm going to give you the ability to do it. And that's why grace gives us wings. And that's why the, 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 the topic of grace is the central feature of the entire New Testament. We are saved by grace. We are sanctified by grace. Give up on yourself. Stop trying to do it on your own and say, I'm done with me. I'm done with what I have to offer. I'm ready for what God wants to do through me. I'm ready for his strength. I'm ready for his perfection. I'm ready for his justification, for his mercy. Amen? Amen. Amen.